morning. Whoever whistling, sure. Morning to you as well. Privilege and honor to be with you all here this morning from my Star Wars capsule pod <laughs> preaching to you. Um, this is great. Uh, my name is John Song. I serve as the pastor of youth ministry and coordinator of worship at uh, Columbia Presbyterian Church in Columbia, Maryland. And uh, for the past several days, uh, I've had the privilege to spend time here with my fiance Paige over here and in the beautiful city of Charleston, where apparently in February it's 70 degrees outside <laughs> during the week. This is Great. Um, I want to thank Pastor Craig and the session of Redeemer Presbyterian Church for the opportunity uh, to come here, preach with you all, share God's word with you here this morning, and to meet the national treasure that is Yates Jarvis. So <laughs> thank you. Um, as we're on this journey together to discern where the Lord is leading us, uh, I would love to be able to talk with you after service uh, to be able to get to know you better. And Lord willing, we'll be able to see each other again very soon. But for now, if you've got a Bible, uh, turn or tap over to the Gospel of Luke, Luke sorry, chapter 23. Uh, in your bulletin, it says, starting from verse 26, we're actually going to go from verse 32 to verse 43. Verse 32 to verse 43, if you have a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 884. And while you're turning or tapping there, I want you all to consider this phrase that You've all heard, maybe growing up, um, especially if you've spent any time in media or marketing, you've, you've heard this phrase before called, perception is reality. And this phrase touches on the idea that how you view someone in the public sphere is the reality of, that, of who that person is. Perception is reality. And more often than not, it remains a virtue that dictates value. This is why first impressions matter so much when you meet someone new for the first time, you're dissecting all that you can from the individual. How the person talks, how that person dresses, the color of his shoes, why in the world does he use so much hair gel? There's no way I can trust a preacher like that. Some of you are laughing too hard. We got to pray for you. And here's the problem with perceptions. There's always a moving target based upon the information that you have. For example, what if I told you that I am the son of an immigrant first-generation Korean family? I was born in California, but raised in Maryland. And I'm a pastor's kid, or for better or for worse, I'm a senior pastor's kid. Sorry, Brooke and Claire. I'm a University of Maryland Terrapin. I'm a Baltimore Oriole. I'm a Phoenix Sun. I'm an unhopeful Washington Redskins fan. I was, for a year, a semi-professional video game player. I'm a meat and potatoes guy. I'm 34. I'm an introvert. I'm an INFJ. I'm a two on the Enneagram. I was a band teacher in the public school system where, yes, I went by the last name, or went by the teacher name of Mr. Song Teaching Band. <laughs> now, after sharing all of that with you, how has that changed your perception of me? Or has that created more categories of different perceptions? Does that really determine the reality of who I am? And do all those labels and all those perceptions define the reality of me? And maybe I'll turn the question back to you. Does it define the reality of how people perceive you? Does that determine the reality of who you are? For many of us, when we say the word Christianity... Perhaps that stokes up many perceptions for you in this room today. And if it's your first time here, 
it's your first time in the church, we welcome you. Uh, we want you to examine this question yourself. And it probably won't take you too long, uh, no matter uh, where you are in this room, to realize that the perception of Christianity rarely meets the reality of what we hope Christianity to be, whether that's a positive or negative perception. And these questions in our mind begin to form. How can Christianity be perceived to be true if so often Christians around the world act in horrific and unchristian-like manners? How can Christianity be the one true religion in, the, in, the, in fact, if the kingdom of God that they keep on talking about always appears to be in decline? How can Christianity see the world truly if their churches always seem to struggle with difficulty and pain and suffering? How can Christianity claim that they perceive the true purpose of our lives? And how can they face that world with confidence and hope? Now, I recognize these are complex and difficult questions for any of us here to be able to answer, whether you're a Christian or a skeptic here today. So perhaps it might be better to reduce the big question of Christianity to simpler ones. As one of my seminary professors would often say, the Bible is complicated, but perhaps all situations in the Bible, and indeed the human life, can be reduced down to the core of these two questions. What is your perception of Jesus? And how does that shape the reality that you live? What is your perception of Jesus? And how does this shape the reality of the life that you live? In our Bible passage today, in Luke chapter 23, there's a focus on two criminals that are crucified with Jesus, and their perception of Jesus determines the reality in which they live in. And what you'll see here is that a proper perception of Christ leads to the reality of to understand what your life, salvation, and Christianity is all about. So let's read Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. And as I'll conclude, I'll, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying thanks be to God. So Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today... You will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. God. Let's pray together. Father, be with the preaching of your word. Help us to see you clearly, rightly, and truly. And may that change the reality of ourselves 
of our families, of our relationship, of our church, and the world that we live in, all under this paradise, the kingdom of God that we long to see and that is already here. Bless the preaching of your word by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this story is one that perhaps if you've grown up in the church, many of you have been familiar with. It's really covering a theme that Luke's gospel has been trying to tell over and over again. And Luke spends a central focus of his gospel by diving into the question of how do people perceive Jesus. As a child, Jesus was a boy whose wisdom marveled the teachers. As a hometown carpenter, Jesus was rejected by his own people. As a rabbi, Jesus is affirmed by the most unlikely bunch. A centurion who affirms his power, while Jewish leaders of the day reject him and try to create conflict at every turn. Crowds of thousands come to listen and hear him preach, but the response is conflicted. There are tax collectors, zealots, fishermen who affirm him and follow him. And then there are those, the cultural elite, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who are trying to combat him at every side. And here we are at the very end of Luke's gospel. And the climax of this struggle is where we end up with the scene of these two thieves. And I want you to see this scene. And and I want you to picture yourself as one of these thieves. Just just to to read all the things that we read in verses 32 to verses 38. There you are. You're, you're, You're standing next to two other men. Guilty of the same thing that you're guilty of. In fact, guilty in as as it's tried by the courts. Receiving capital punishment. One of the most heinous ways to die. Crucifixion. You're going to a place, and you're traveling to this place that is literally called the skull. So you know this isn't exactly going to be a nice scenic picture. This isn't going to be a walk in the battery. You're heading to a place that is literally called the skull. And as you arrive there, you... And the other two people that you're with have nails being driven to your hands and feet, presented before the crowds there to watch you die. And as you're there, you start hearing from this guy named Jesus that you've heard about. And he says things like, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And in your head, you might be thinking to yourself, this is the talk of a crazy person. How can you forgive someone who just drove a nail through your hands and feet? Meanwhile, the most respected officials in the town are mocking this Jesus. Soldiers crying out, you know, if you really say that what you are is what you are, then you are going to save yourself. The king of the Jews will be able to redeem himself from this situation. How dare this small town nobody rabbi from Nazareth Come into our communities and homes and spread his lies. He deserves to die. He deserves our mockery. We owe nothing to this man. Now, if you were a criminal hanging there, what is your perception of Jesus Christ? See, we got to remember that sometimes we have the benefit of looking at this side of the Bible, this side of redemptive history. But honestly, ask yourself, what would be your viewpoint of Jesus in that moment, in that situation, if you were one of these thieves. Luke draws out these two thieves and their responses, and we see it here. And in fact, this is the only gospel that really dives into how the thieves respond in detail. 
And so look at verse 39 again with me, if you could. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now let's pause here, right? We have to see the tragic irony that is being presented here in this text. The criminal is railing at Jesus, a word in the original language of Scripture that has this force of hurling abuse, but the grammar is set up in such a way that the railing here described as challenging the very divinity of Christ. So that word rail is saying, you are not God. Now that, let's just pause and just think about that in our own lives. When the circumstances of life lead us down a path that we think is going to be the end of us, how many of us here would rather curse God and die rather than to really see who Christ is? How many of us in those moments would rather just curse God when life isn't what we had expected it to be? When our perception of Jesus isn't the reality of what we're living in? And our hope that you were able to catch it here in this text, that he states that this greatest irony in here is to shape his reality. He calls Jesus, not by the name Jesus, he calls him Christ. Now, some of you who've grown up in the church think that Christ was Jesus' last name. It's not, all right? It's not. It's actually a title. Christ means chosen one, anointed one. The very one that God has chosen. You see the irony here, right? There's a part of him that might even believe that Jesus was the Christ. That he would, if, if he was, he would have this great power to act in this situation. Namely, saving him from dying. That if Jesus was the anointed one, then surely his version of salvation would be granted. You gotta understand here, the thief's salvation was way too small. He simply wanted to be removed from his temporary circumstances. Salvation was simply to be removed for the cross, but he didn't have the vision that ultimately realized that he, even if Jesus were to do that, he still would face death eventually. Jesus, to him, his perception of Jesus was a device that he would use to gain his salvation, not Christ's. All he sees are the disasters of the moment, the angry crowd, the pain in his body, the jeers of those around him. But in his own mind, if Jesus could remove this temporary pain, then Jesus would be Savior. Then Jesus would be Christ. This is something that we as a church must be careful in seeing and realizing when it comes in our own relationship with Christ in the body of Christ. Too often what we long for in this life, what we dream to be the salvation of our souls, is nothing more than to replace the salvation that Jesus offers to us freely. Too often we think that Jesus would be greatly worshipped in our lives if our bills were paid for, if our children would act more appropriately, if our church was more united, if we didn't have to suffer as much, then Jesus would be Christ. If only society would view Christianity in the way that was respected. If only that this person would reach out to me and forgive me. If only I could forgive that other person. Then Jesus would be Christ. 
we often seek salvation in all the wrong places. And what we don't realize is we have forfeited our soul from an everlasting savior to temporary relief. So in the work that I do with youth ministry, I, I see no greater analogy of this. Oftentimes when I take my youth students in some form of hiking or camping. Now, now you got to understand, uh, the ministry context where I do ministry in is uh, Time Money Magazine ranked it as the number one best place to live in America. Right? It's the height of suburbia. Highest average median income. There's a Starbucks and organic this and that on every corner. I mean, it's just the, the ultimate suburban utopia. And so when I tell these kids, middle school kids and high school kids, hey, guys, we're going to go hiking and camping, I love looking at their faces. I mean, these are kids that have never sat 30 feet away from an iPhone charger, right? And they're telling them to go out into the wilderness. So I take them to this place called Elk Neck State Park in northeast Maryland. And there's this trail that I love hiking up with these kids. It's called the Turkey Point Trail. And there's one problem with this trail. It's two miles long. And telling a crew of middle schoolers, especially these Howard County middle schoolers, there's a two-mile-long trail, well, you can expect all the typical responses. So I remember this one time I was taking up this group, and there was this one particular girl, and she was just not having this whole hiking thing. Uh, she made it her mission to stay by my side and convince me of how bad of an idea this was. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. We need to turn around. My Uggs are getting dirty. And just all of these different things, just complaining moment after moment after moment. And then she throws the most suburban middle school line that she could ever throw. She says, you know what? If I get hurt, my parents are going to be mad and they are going to sue you. So despite all of this opposition, you know, I laugh all of this off, right? I, I, and, and all I say to her is, just you wait. Just you wait and see. Now why? Why do I say that? Because she doesn't know what's awaiting at the end of the trail. See, at the end of this two-mile trail, there is this gorgeous and beautiful overlook looking over the Elk River which is connected to the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. It's just, one, just this gorgeous sight. And on top of this overlook, there's this gorgeous lighthouse. And when you arrive at the end of this trail, it just looks like paradise. It just looks like this place that you could just sit and enjoy life together. And sure enough, after two miles of complaining and hiking, we arrive and we see the overlook, and her eyes just open up. And she says, why didn't you tell me this place was so cool? <gasps> and she just has this amazing time. The complaining stops. She's laughing. She's playing. She's running around. I mean, she's having the most glorious time. And when it was time to leave, I mean, parents in the room, you understand this, right? She goes up to me and she says the most predictable thing that a kid will say. We have to leave now. You know, sometimes when I think we ask the Lord to redeem us from our current circumstances, it's because those current circumstances have taken the place and value and worth and glory and honor in our lives that only God should have. 
And God is just patiently walking down alongside this trail of life with us, saying, just you wait and see. Just you wait and see. Now imagine for me with a moment, what would actually happen if Jesus answered this man's request? What would that say about Christ himself? What would that really mean for all of us here in this today? We would still stand in our sins without a redeemer. We would not have a perfect sacrifice. We would not have a perfect advocate. We would not have the righteousness of Christ clothed upon us. We would not have God truly relate to us in our miseries and even death. And we would still be left wondering who is the one that the Father will send to be the sacrifice and the atonement for sins in the world today. To answer this man's perception of Christ is to make God puny. If God could be controlled in this manner, is he really even God? Jesus' response to this criminal is amazing. Did you catch it? He says nothing. This criminal is throwing out the temptation for Christ to prove himself, and he doesn't. Jesus often says that there won't be a sign for the unbelieving. And Jesus doesn't take his bait. Now, why? And here's the greatest irony of all in his response. I've often thought when reading this passage, when the criminal says, save yourself in us, I imagine myself as Jesus in that moment. And I'm thinking to, to myself, don't you see what I'm doing? You say, save yourself in us. Can't you see that I'm trying to save you? Can't you see that I'm trying to redeem you from your sins? To offer true salvation Can't you see that I want you to bring you back in relationship with me? Can't you see that I want you to bring you into the family of God? But Jesus says nothing. Now the silence wouldn't go unnoticed. As the repentant criminal now steps in to speak the words against the mocker, the second thief, with the second perception of Jesus. Unique to Luke's gospel is this account of the second criminal. While the, only other, while the other gospel narratives only see the pictures of the criminal in mockery, Luke dives deeper, and he begins to show and unravel the second thief. And you see, the second thief doesn't see a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. He doesn't see a bloody and beaten man. He doesn't notice the, the circumstances of everything that's happening around him, the people yelling and cheering for their deaths. The Roman soldiers just waiting around until they breathe their last breath. He doesn't see any of that. All he can see is that his Savior is being railed at. And he comes to Jesus' defense. This criminal's perception of Christ has led to the reality of Jesus' innocence. And he can no longer remain silent. So he says, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So again, let's view the contrast here. One criminal perceives God as a tool, the other perceives God and realizes his own sin. One demands 
his version of salvation. The other one doesn't have any expectation of it. One wants relief from the temporary perception. The other sees the reality of who Jesus is and pleads for Jesus to be able to remember him when he enters into his kingdom. Not because he has any worth or value. He's already admitted his wrongdoings, but because he knows that Jesus is the only one that can give him everlasting relief by being in the presence of Christ forever in his kingdom. Now, church, again, I'm going to put this back to you. What would this look like for you in your life today? What it would look like to see the kingdom of God more tangibly, more real, more powerfully than anything else in the world. Than relational stability, than financial security. Than what you imagine to be the perfect church. What kingdom would you want to see more than anything else in the world? Your kingdom or Christ? What would you be willing to do to give generously and to be involved in this kingdom. This criminal recognizes that Jesus is ushering in the messianic kingdom and wants to be a part of it. And how he relates to Christ just shows you what he perceives of him. The one and only time in your New Testament where Jesus doesn't have an accompanying title is right here where this thief simply just calls him Jesus his personal name. Every other time, Jesus is related to as a title. Jesus of Nazareth, Rabbi, Christ, Sir. But this one and only time in your New Testament, this thief on the Christ sees the person and the humanity of Jesus. Just Jesus. He believes this temporary circumstance, this temporary life isn't the only one he's got. He's got an eternity in God's kingdom, and he wants to be a part of it. He wants to be known. You know, one of the most powerful and intimate things that we can do in church community is to know one another, to remember each other. It brings us joy in the most painful moments of life to remember those who have cared for us, remember those who have comforted us, to remember love that sacrificed for us, a love that gave us dignity, a love that loved us when we were unlovable. And it's one of the greatest things that we can give to one another in the church when we know and remember each other. This man simply wants to be known in the kingdom of God, but Jesus does him one better. Jesus sees that this man wants true salvation found in the true Savior that this man perceives correctly. And he sees reality as what it truly is. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now Luke loves this theme throughout his Gospels. Time and time again, at the, and even at this moment of crucifixion, Luke drives home this point all throughout his Gospels. And, and, and he's making a, a contrast here. The well-educated, the disciples, the elites, those who should have perceived Jesus most clearly in his gospel cannot. And yet, the sinners, the tax collectors, the dredges of society, me, you, 
You, whose sin was once deep. You, who you thought were to be unredeemable. This thief. You can have access to this almighty God by placing your trust and faith in him. That's good news. God's grace is immediate. This is why he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is found on his sufferings on the cross, which was bore for us. God's grace is immediate for you here today. No matter how ashamed you are of the things that you have done in your life, it is immediate for you to receive today. God's grace is immediate for you who have grown up in Christ. Covenant children. To participate in the work of the kingdom of God that is already here in the city of Charleston and is yet to come. Why? Because we perceive the new reality through Christ's eyes. So church today, what circumstances will you endure as we pursue paradise together? How can we look and see Christ clearly from opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil? How can we trust in our great leader, Jesus Christ, who is walking us through the season of difficulty, through the trials of life, who hears all of our groanings and complainings and says, just you wait and see. The best is yet to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, which helps us to see you clearly which helps us to perceive you as you are. The Holy One, the Lamb of God, the salvation of our souls. Father, we pray that that would help us to trust in His work, in His salvation. And Lord, that we could be then the kingdom makers. Lord, to teach a world that has perceived it's so wrong on what the purpose of their lives truly is all about, and that we could be a part of restoring this kingdom of God as the ones made in your image. God, we thank you for this time together in your word. In Jesus' name we pray.